Good morning, church. Just let me absorb this. Let me just look at you. Let me just thank the Lord. Of course, I am thankful for being here. I'm thankful for the opportunity that the Lord has presented so that I can come and I can see you again and worship the Lord together. And of course, part of that is to speak about the ministry to Armenia. That would be later during Sunday school time. I'm thankful for the Lord's presence in this church. We have been praying for you. Uh, you've stood faithful and we have been blessed. And I'm saying we because, you know, I'm coming from Grace Community Church. Could you believe that? You know, as a Canadian, of course, just temporarily in the States, getting ready to transition to Armenia, which is six days after I leave Canada next Wednesday. On the 12th, we are officially traveling to Armenia. So it's coming up very soon. I'm thankful to the elders, Pastor James, Pastor Jake, for their, for their love, friendship, hospitality, everything, and the other elders as well. And of course, thank you all for having me here to bring the word of God to you. But before we do that, just want to say that my wife has greetings to you as well. And uh, yeah, I would have preferred to have been at Grace Community Church this morning. Don't get me wrong. Hold on. To hear Pastor John preach or one of the other pastors preach rather than hearing myself. But again, it's a delight. It's a joy uh, to be here. Uh, well, let's bow our heads. Let's go to the Word of God. But before that, let's pray. Father, what a joy it is to be able to come before you on the Lord's day to worship you. Father, thank you for what I've heard and seen even up till now today. I'm encouraged. I'm encouraged and I thank you and I praise you for the work that you're doing in this church. Continue to bless this church, protect this church, continue to increase everyone's godliness before you. And Lord, may your name be ongoingly honored through everything that the church does and stands for. Father, now that we turn to your word, Father, we pray that you will help every one of us to focus on your truth, especially regarding this matter of forgiveness. Forgiveness according to Jesus. And that is that we are called by you to forgive from the heart. Father, we pray that you will honor your name. In Jesus we ask. Amen. Forgiveness according to Jesus. Our text is from Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 to 35. In one of his sermons, Dr. John MacArthur tells of the following true story. He says, There is in the city of Los Angeles a rather famous place, certainly known well among our Jewish population. And he says it's called the Simon Wiesenthal Center. You might know, he says, of the Simon Wiesenthal Center, but not know much about who Simon was. And then he says, let me tell you a little bit of the story. He was a prisoner in the Mauthausen concentration camp in Poland, a Jew, of course. He was signed to clean out garbage from the barn in the middle of that concentration camp that had been converted into a hospital, which was used to give medical treatment to SS German soldiers 
who were wounded. Toward evening, one day, when he was fulfilling his duties of cleaning out the rubbish in that place, a nurse took him by the hand and led him to a bed where there was lying a dying SS trooper. The story goes that the young man was 21 years of age. His name was Carl Seidel. The biographer, because this is a book, as I'll mention later, the biographer says that his face was bandaged with pus-soaked rags, eyes tucked somewhere behind the gauze. He grabbed Wiesenthal's hand and clutched it. He said that he had to talk to a Jew and he could not die before he confessed his sins, which he had committed against so many helpless Jews. And that he had to be forgiven by a Jew before he died. So he told Wiesenthal his sad tale. He belonged to a battalion that had gunned down many Jews, men, women, and children. On one occasion, a number of them were trying to escape from a house that the troopers had set on fire. And then when they had ran for their lives, they were mowed down. The story is written in a book that Simon Wiesenthal had written. It's called The Sunflower. And look at the subtitle, On the Possibilities and Limits of Forgiveness. On the Possibilities and Limits of Forgiveness. Wiesenthal listened to this dying man's story. First, the story of his youth, his innocent youth, and then the story of his participation in evil and the massacre of the Jews. After hearing the story, Wiesenthal pulled his hand away. No, the biographer says he jerked his hand out, out of his hand, that the hand of the dying SS trooper and walked out of the barn. No word was spoken. No forgiveness was given. Wiesenthal would not and could not forgive. But as he says in his book, he was not sure he did right. So the story is in the sunflower as mentioned. And the book ends with this question. What would you have done? It's kind of like a practical application, right? What would you have done? 32 eminent persons, mostly Jewish, contributed their answers to Wiesenthal's hard question. Most said Wiesenthal was right. He should not have forgiven and he did right not to forgive the SS trooper because it would not have been fair. Why should a man who gave his will to doing monumental evil expect a quick word of forgiveness on his deathbed? And what right, some of these men said, what right had Wiesenthal to forgive the man for the evil he had done to other Jews? And if he had forgiven the soldier, he would have been saying that the Holocaust was not so evil after all. And one respondent said, let the SS trooper go to hell. Pastor John continues saying, well, that's a far cry from what the Lord asks of us, isn't it? And yet many of us feel the same way when we are unfairly treated, when we are hurt, when we are wounded, when we are maligned, when we are mistreated in far less horrible ways than this. And sometimes our hate is the only card we hold and our only weapon is our contempt. Our only way of consolation is to get even and why should we forgive anyway? End of quote. 
This is a story of unforgiveness, and it is a sad one. Think about this. If you were in Wiesenthal's place, how would you have reacted? What would you do if someone did such evil to you, to your loved ones, or to your people? Remember, I am from the Armenian background, and a little bit over 100 years ago, we experienced the Armenian genocide, and it is a major issue with Armenian people, most Armenian people, because they can't forgive those who massacred them. This was during the first war. And would, if you were in such a situation, just like Wiesenthal was with that SS soldier, would forgiveness ever cross your mind? If somebody did this to your people, to your own loved ones, what would you do? Would you say, sure, I can forgive. You know, it's so easy to say, yeah, I know the Bible. I know I have to forgive, but you know what? The Lord will put us, every Christian will be placed in a specific situation or situations which will require forgiveness at some point of time in our lives, right? The more you want to grow in godliness, the more you are with influence in ministry, the pastors especially, the elders especially, the deacons, the more you are in positions of leadership, the more you want to serve the Lord faithfully, the more you'll be tested, like in every other department in the Christian life. And forgiveness, forgiving others, is a major theme. It's a major problem to us to deal with. And God has called us, even in this, to be faithful to his word. Before we discuss about what true forgiveness should look like, let's briefly describe what forgiveness is not. It's not forgiveness when you try to forget the offense done against you as you let time heal your wounds. You've heard that, right? Oh, I'll just let time heal my wounds. We'll be okay. I'll get over it. It's not forgiveness when you say to yourself, you know what, I can tolerate the offender to continue hurting me without you doing something right about it. That is, you know, forgiveness is not tolerating the person who offends you continually without you doing something proper, something right about it. And hence the emphasis on something right. And that something right, of course, must be according to the word of God. Forgiveness is not getting even with someone and then you may forgive, right? This is like the way of the world. They do these things, correct? We don't. We're not called to do as such. And forgiveness is not saying to someone, I've forgiven you, and yet someday you'd again bring up that offense against the offender and kind of like as if it's like a reminding slap to his face. We can't do that. We can't do that. If it's forgiven, it's gone forever. So turn with me to Matthew 18. We've got before us a parable about forgiveness. And it's a parable which teaches about the believer's responsibility to forgive another believer. And the parable conveys this idea. Certainly, its principle is also generally applicable to all other situations where there is the need to forgive other people. Based on our text, and I'm using the NASP, I haven't transitioned yet to the legacy, which I'm planning on doing it. Based on the NASP, there are four biblical truths in our text 
Matthew 18, verses 21 to 35, we've got four biblical truths required from us to know and to act upon so that we may be empowered to practice forgiveness according to Jesus. Forgiveness according to Jesus. And that is to forgive from the heart. From the heart. Look at verses 21 and 22. The first truth, the first biblical truth required from us to know and act upon so that we may be empowered to forgive one another from the heart is the extent of forgiveness. The extent of forgiveness. Then Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? You see, Peter's question is right on the heels of verses 15 to 20, that section of scripture, which we all know it deals with discipline, church discipline, basically about dealing with sin in the family of God. Basically, Peter is asking, is forgiveness limited? Is forgiveness limited? Don Carson says in rabbinic discussion, the consensus was that a brother might be forgiven a repeated sin three times. On the fourth, there's no forgiveness. Pastor John MacArthur concurs also with this. He says this is apparently based on passages from Amos chapters 1 and 2. For example, and you don't have to turn to Amos chapters 1 and 2. Just quickly read them to you so that you'll get the feel. Amos 1.9, it says, Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Tyre, and for four, I will not revoke its punishment, because they delivered up an entire population to Edom and did not remember the covenant of brotherhood. Verse 13 states, Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of the sons of Ammon, and for four, I will not revoke its punishment, because they ripped open the pregnant women of Gilead in order to enlarge their borders. Amos 2.4, again, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Judah, and for four, I will not revoke its punishment, because they rejected the law of the Lord, have not kept their statutes, their lies also have led them astray, those after which their fathers walked. You see, these are verses, of course, against Tyre, against Ammon, against uh, Edom, Judah, Israel, chapter 2, verse 6, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke its punishment because they sell the righteous for money and the needy for a pair of sandals. All this, we know in context, has nothing to do about forgiving one another and regarding the extent of forgiveness. One rabbi said, I quote, he who begs forgiveness. So based on these verses, that was the rabbinic understanding as Dr. MacArthur, Dr. Carson, they state. So one rabbi said, he who begs forgiveness from his neighbor must not do so more than three times. Another said, if a man commits an offense once, they forgive him. If he commits an offense a second time, they forgive him. If he commits an offense a third time, they forgive him. On the fourth time, they do not forgive. Basically, the rabbis placed limits on forgiveness. End of quote. So ask yourself the question, does such an attitude describe me and you? Let's ask that question. Do we limit the forgiveness we grant others? The apostle Peter was raised, remember that, he was raised in this kind of culture. And that's how he might have understood it. It was a faulty logic. It's not a biblical logic. The, the faulty logic was, if God forgave his enemies three times, then the same could be asked of people. So thinking himself to be kind-hearted, generous, 
you know, Peter answers seven times in an answer to his own question. And of course, what's the Lord's response? Verse 22, Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. Basically, the Lord tells Peter, forgiveness is boundless. It is unlimited. We don't believe in unlimited atonement, but we believe in unlimited forgiveness. What Jesus means by 70 times seven was not that we forgive 490 times and at the 491st time, that's it. We stop forgiving. No, no. What the Lord means is that we should forgive in such a way that it will become what? A habit, a habit where we lose count after all. Peter asked for a fair measuring rod and the Lord told him to practice forgiveness and to forget the measuring rod. Our forgiveness must be without a limit. This is the extent of forgiveness according to the Lord Jesus Christ. Second, look at verses 23 to 27. Verses 23 to 27. The second biblical truth required from us to know and to act upon so that we may be empowered to forgive from the heart. That's forgiveness according to Jesus. It's the example of forgiveness. The example of forgiveness. We saw the extent of forgiveness. It has to be unlimited. And now we're looking at we're considering the example of forgiveness. Whom should we imitate when it comes to forgiving others? Is there an example to follow? And of course, the text tells us our example. For this reason, verse 23, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. Here's a kingdom who has, so here's a king who has a kingdom. It's a picture of God his kingdom also. And the king had slaves. And these slaves had been given responsibilities. They've been given money to use, to utilize in their delegated jurisdictions. They were responsible to give an account to the king of what they did with their money. And when, verse 24, he had begun to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. When the accounts were being settled, one of the slaves was brought before the king who owed him 10,000 talents. This is an unimaginable sum of money. You can't even put a number to this. Maybe the slave was a tax collecting official. Maybe he had been stealing money from the king. And when the books were inspected, suddenly he was exposed. He had nowhere to hide. He had seriously offended the king. 10,000 talents. 10,000 was the largest number the Greeks had. But 10,000 could have also been figurative. It could have figuratively meant an incalculable number. Let's do some math. Sorry, I know it's Sunday morning and there's teenagers here, young adults in college, university. Maybe we don't feel like it but this is biblical, no choice. So if we take this number literally and assuming that this was a talent of silver, imagine if it was a talent of gold, it would have been even greater in value. But assuming this was a talent of silver, it was estimated that a talent was about 6,000 denarii. We know a denarius was the wage of a daily laborer. 
So if you were to work in the field of someone, you would receive for your day's work one denarius. So do the math. A single talent would have been the earning of a laborer in around 20 years. So if you worked 300 days per year, because you know a faithful Jew would not work on the Sabbath. So 300 days multiplied by 20 years, is like 6,000. But this is still one talent. Now multiply this by 10,000. I mean, this is an incomprehensible amount of money. It's a huge sum to deal with, to pay back. But verse 25, since, of course, he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had and repayment to be made. Remember, this is a parable. The parable has always one specific major truth to deal with. And the parable deals with the matter of forgiveness. So we shouldn't say, okay, you know, we know this represents the Lord. So in order to have me forgive someone else, you know, I have to exact his family from him if he's failing to forgive me. No, no, we can't go there, right? This is about forgiveness and we should stay there. We know from the parables of the Lord Jesus, he had lots of fillers. And this is also part of the story. There was no way this slave could ever pay back the debt to his master. It was beyond too much. And the king, the Lord, was just in condemning him and commanding that everything had to be sold in repayment. So, verse 26, the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him. The verb, the verb translated prostrated himself before him, basically from that we also get the verb to worship. Proskuneo. So what basically is happening is just like bowing before the master, before the king, you know, begging him, pleading with him. Don't do this to me. You know what? That's exactly the feeling every time somebody is in need of forgiveness. And if we don't offer that forgiveness, basically the person is saying, I beg of you, forgive me. I know I've sinned. A true Christian will acknowledge it, even if he or she may not have the courage to do it right away in the proper timing. But still, there's that fight in me and in you because the Holy Spirit will not allow me at ease, at peace, until I choose to forgive. So he fell. He prostrated himself before his Lord and said, have patience with me and I will repay you everything. Just keep that in mind. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. You see, here's a beautiful picture of divine forgiveness. The Lord's forgiveness is beyond human comprehension and it's beyond calculation. Hence, the Bible declares that in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's what God does to sin-confessing and repentant people. He forgives. He forgives. Speaking of which, you're here this morning and you're hearing this message about forgiving others. But how about the forgiveness of the Lord, the verse that we just read from, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So the basic question is, have you experienced God's forgiveness? It's not just a feeling. We know everyone who's forgiven 
by God knows. It's a work of the Spirit in us. He testifies in us that we've been forgiven by God. Have you experienced that assurance? Do you know what it means to be forgiven of your sins? Have you said, Lord Jesus, I know, according to your word that I've read often, I'm a sinner and I'm in need of forgiveness. Forgive me. Have you done this with all your heart? If you've done so, you are a child of God by grace. But if not, please don't delay. Turn from your sins. Confess them to the Lord and he is ready, willing, and of course, able to forgive all your sins and give you eternal life. That's his promise. If you've got any questions, please come and see the pastors and the elders after the service. There's a story which says there's a little boy in the supermarket one day with his mom. He was having a particularly naughty day and his mother had forbidden him to touch anything else in the store. While she was going up an aisle, she suddenly heard a huge crash and turned around to see her son standing with a can in his hand beside an aisle full of cans. He decided to grab a can from where? Guess what? From the bottom of the pile, from the bottom of the display. And he had sent hundreds tumbling down. Well, the story says, mom's face went bright red. A mixture of embarrassment and anger was there on her face. And she stormed down the aisle, picked up the boy and placed him firmly in the child's seat in the trolley. And she said this, don't you dare move another inch, young man. After a few minutes had gone by, the boy plucked up some courage and said, mommy, you said the other day that when God forgives our sins, he buries them at the bottom of the deepest ocean. Didn't you? You know, he's referring to Micah 719. He knows how to manipulate and probably many of our kids do the same. You know. Of course, Micah 7.19 says, you will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. And mom said, through clenched teeth, yes, son. And then he continued, of course, now he's being emboldened. He says, and you said that it didn't matter what we did. God would never drag those things up again, didn't you? Yes, son. You know, he's, he's a wise theologian. He knows how to argue. Well, he said, mommy, I've got a feeling that when we get home, we're going to fishing. We're going to fishing. He's smart. He got the point. <laughs> God has said, yes, he'll cast our sins into the depths of the ocean. And you know what? When you're forgiven, you got to do that. And you got to forgive and you got to do that. That's the point of the kid. This slave had an enormous debt to pay back to his Lord. But his response showed pride and, and a lack of sincere repentance. Because you know what he said? He said, I'll pay you back. Be patient with me. He wasn't sincere. There was no way he could have paid it back. And his master knew it well, but he still forgave him. He still just let go of it, right? The king forgave, even though the slave didn't deserve it, because the Lord chose to show compassion and mercy. This shows all true forgiveness is substitutionary in nature because no one truly forgives without somehow bearing the consequences of the other person's sin. You only need to remember the story of Joseph 
to realize that true forgiveness had to bear the evil actions of his brothers. Certainly, the greatest example in forgiveness is whom? Our Lord Jesus Christ. Through his death, he gave himself for us on the cross. We were his enemies, says Romans 5, verses 8 to 10. And that text reminds us that he rescued us from our sin and separation from God while we were yet enemies. You see, that's the example that we need to imitate and follow. What's the often told excuse? And you've heard this, you know, somebody comes to you and says, but you don't know what is done to me. You don't know how much she's hurt me. Exactly. That's how God feels for what you and I have done against him by sinning against him because it demanded of him to give up his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to die for our sins. The ultimate example in forgiveness is God who provided us with mercy and compassion when we needed it the most. So why should we forgive? Think about it. Why should we forgive? Ephesians 4.32 says, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, because he admitted he was wrong, because he apologized to you, because he's a good guy and he deserves a second chance, right? Does it say so? No, no. It says just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Brothers and sisters, this is the biblical basis as to why we need to forgive one another. So you want to be more like Jesus, right? You want to imitate his example, right? We all want that. But you and I will never be more like the Lord until we learn to forgive each other just as he has shown forgiveness to us. Did we deserve being forgiven? Not at all. Not at all. And you and I are no more like God than when we forgive. Let's practice that. And we'll receive the blessing from God. So there has to be in me and in you a vast room for forgiveness because we are no more God-like than when we exercise, practice forgiveness. Our example in forgiveness is our Lord. We must imitate him so that we may be able to practice forgiveness according to his desires, according to his will, according to his heart, and to do so from the heart. This brings us to the third truth required from us to know and act upon so that we may be empowered to forgive one another from the heart. And it's a look at verses 28 to 30. Verses 28 to 30, it's the expectation of forgiveness. The expectation of forgiveness. We've seen the extent of forgiveness, the example of forgiveness, and the expectation of forgiveness. Forgiveness anticipates empathy. Because God did it, Ephesians 4.32, we must do the same. Verse 28, but that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. You know, this first slave purposefully found another slave who was indebted to him. Was he trying to accumulate some money to pay back his Lord as he said that he would? No, that was not his motive. Why? Because he was already and fully pardoned by his Lord. His lack of forgiveness as demonstrated toward his fellow servant showed his lack of understanding regarding the forgiveness that he had received from his master. He had no clue of the extent of forgiveness which 
had come to him from his gracious king. The point is this, every time as Christians, we fail to forgive. Basically, we reveal that we have not yet properly grasped or properly grasped enough what God has done to every one of us through the Lord Jesus Christ. So every time I do not forgive in the way I should forgive from the heart, not just, you know what, I've done it, you know, check mark, it's done. No, no, the Lord knows the heart. The Lord knows the heart. Forgiveness has to be from the heart. That's the only way forgiveness is according to the Lord Jesus Christ. So if I say that I've forgiven, but I've not done it properly, I should reconsider my forgiveness. Is it genuine? And if I don't forgive at all, and that's the worst of it, basically, I'm just, as a Christian, I'm just revealing the true nature of my heart, which is still not where it's supposed to be in the walk before the Lord. Why? Because if I'm maturing in Christ, then I know I got to forgive. Otherwise, it may tell me and others would notice that I still have not understood what it means, the message of Ephesians 4.32 and Colossians 3.13. Forgive just as God in Christ has forgiven you. Even if we remember nothing of what was said today. Remember Ephesians 4.32. Forgive the basis, the foundation, the motivation as to why we need to forgive is because God in Christ has forgiven me. It disarms me. Every time I remember that, if ever something happens where I'm tempted in my sinfulness not to forgive right away from the heart, as hard as it is, I'm reminded if he forgave me, I have no choice. I have no choice. Willingly, I have to forgive. That's God's directive prescription according to his word. So was this first slave just in the way he acted toward his fellow slave or servant? Yeah, he was acting injustice because the guy owed him 100 denarii, but that was not done in compassion. And we know 100 denarii was not too much because 100 denarii was equal to roughly about four months of wages. But verse 28, again, I read, but that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. And he seized him and began to choke him saying, pay back what you owe. You see, he manifested physical and verbal abuse toward the slave. You see, every time we fail to forgive each other, in essence, we do the same. I feel the choking hand, your choking hand on my neck when you fail to forgive me when I've sinned against you. So, verse 29, his fellow slave fell. And this is just, the verb here is from pipto. It just means to fall, fall down. There's no sense of even, you know, prostrating before. He fell down to the ground and began to plead with him, saying, have patience with me and I will repay you. It's the same wording that he had said, the first slave had said to his master, but he was unwilling and went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what was owed. Instead of sharing with his fellow slave the good news of being pardoned by his Lord, he mistreated his fellow slave mercilessly. And this was an unthinkable act on his part because it was expected of him to forgive, to show empathy, to be understanding because he had experienced the same thing 
It's like me and you when God has forgiven us of our sins and we say, yeah, we know amazing grace, I get it. But then we fail to show that same amazing grace to one another. What am I conveying? I'm a hypocrite. I'm a hypocrite. I need to repent. And yes, we are all in the same boat, brothers and sisters. We're all in the same boat. We need to guard our hearts because we know if we do not guard our hearts in this, trouble can brew anytime, easily, even in the church. It will only take one bitter heart in order for gangrene to spread, the gangrene of unforgiveness. And it starts acting its way in the body of Christ. And eventually it creates a lot of work, a lot of effort to clean things up. But you know, nothing will be able to clean up a heart which is unforgiving, but true repentance and contrition before the Lord and saying, Lord, have mercy on me. I've caused so much grief, not just to myself, but first and foremost to you and to your people, the church of Jesus Christ. This man, the first guy had received forgiveness, but he did not really value it in his heart. That's why he was unable to share it with the other slave. And this is the same sad truth which is the experience of many Christians. They've received the forgiveness of God, but failed to demonstrate that they have it, that they have experienced it in the way they treat their brothers and sisters. And in doing so, they fail to share the wonderful, saving, redeeming, forgiving work of God that God has wrought in the heart of his child, who is right now experiencing difficulty in extending forgiveness towards someone who's hurt him or her. How about you? How about every one of us? You may be here this morning. You may have come to church. Again, I'm not trying to pinpoint anything to anyone. But God's word is clear to us, brothers and sisters. God's word reminds us if there's something in my heart, I got to have to deal with first before the Lord and immediately just resolve it. Just go. Don't waste time. You want to be feeling free? You know, sometimes God's people feel that they're not growing in Christ. Have you ever checked your heart? I checked mine. Have you ever checked your heart that maybe there is a lack of forgiveness towards someone or some people? That's why you're not being able to grow as you should grow. If you think that, oh, now that's between me and the Lord. Nobody knows, but the Lord is forgiving, you know. Why should I, you know, confess that sin to one another when I have other sins that I confess directly to the Lord, right? I mean, I could... Make that case, you may think. Nobody needs to know. It's between me and the Lord. No, forgiveness is, you know, like this, one on one, one toward each other. It's not vertical only. It's on the horizontal basis. We have to deal with it. And as a Christian, if you're not growing properly, even today, based on this word from the Lord's word, please check your heart. Check your heart. I check mine lest there may be any root of bitterness, which as we know from the book of Hebrews, which can just, you know, rear its ugly head and it could cause a lot of problems in the body of Christ, starting with our homes, in our lives, in our individual testimonies before others. We are in desperate need to be forgiven by God because our sins are great. They're enormous. Yet we are also expected to show the same kind of forgiveness in our dealings with one another. To be unforgiving is ugly, is repulsive, especially for a Christian. Someone has said, he that cannot forgive others 
breaks the bridge over which he must pass himself. For everyone has need to be forgiven. End of quote. So don't let the sin of unforgiveness enslave you. Don't let it make you blind toward what is expected of you. The expectation from each of us is to forgive one another. So we've been forgiven by God. We must do the same for each other. That's the divine expectation. There's a fourth and last biblical truth, which is required from us to know and act upon so that we may be empowered to forgive one another from the heart. And it is found in verses 31 to 35, 31 to 35. And there's the equity, the equity, that is the fairness, the justice of forgiveness. That is the fairness or the justice, which forgiveness demands. Forgiveness has an acute sense of fairness or justice. That's what our text reveals to us. So verse 31, when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. You see, the fellow slaves could not remain silent and allow such oppression to continue. Refusing to forgive others grieves the people of God. One way Christians report to God about the unforgiving stance of others is when they intercede on behalf of the oppressed ones through prayer before the Lord. Then summoning him, verse 32, his Lord said to him, you wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? Should you not also... This rhetorical question expects forgiveness to happen. You should have, said the Lord. The verb translated should have is used of something that should happen. It is necessary. One must forgive. One has to forgive. Forgiving one another as God's people, as we know, is not an option. It's an obligation in light of what God has done for every one of us through Christ. The Lord expects his slaves, his children, to treat each other as he has dealt with them in compassion and mercy. And there's another important truth that we need to bear in mind at this point. Forgiveness, we know from scripture, it demonstrates the mark of being a true believer. Only true believers can genuinely forgive. Now, notice this, please, as motivated by the will of God. And it is, of course, for the glory of God. Our motivation should be, this is the Lord's will and it's for his glory. I should forgive because he's forgiven me. And that is one of the marks of a true believer. So when I am not forgiving, literally I am negating, I'm going contrary to my testimony as a Christian. I'm saying that whether I am saved, you know, sometimes people think I'm not sure of my salvation. Well, check your heart. Maybe there's a lack of forgiveness. That maybe is creating in you that fear that you probably are not saved. Real Christians forgive. Real Christians forgive. Proverbs 19, 11 reminds us that it is a man's glory to overlook a transgression. And of course, it is to God's glory to forgive a transgression. The master was just in condemning such a wicked slave. Verse 34 and his Lord moved with, of course, righteous anger, handed him over to the torturers 
until he should repay all that was owed him. Implied by our story, what's the primary thing the king wanted his slave to take care of? It was his debt in forgiving the other slave. Lack of forgiveness in the heart of the offender causes untold spiritual and emotional torture. The question is, have we experienced this? Dr. Warren Wiersbe writes, I quote, he says, the world's worst prison is the prison of an unforgiving heart. If we refuse to forgive others, then we are only imprisoning ourselves and causing our own torment. Some of the most miserable people I have met in my ministry have been people who would not forgive others. They lived only to imagine ways to punish these people who had wronged them, but they were really only punishing themselves. End of quote. By the way, who are these tortures as far as we are concerned? It could be anything from trials and hardships, which the Lord may permit in our lives to humble us so that we may confess our sin of not forgiving and pardon those who have transgressed against us. And this can include, if he chooses to, his use of the enemy, that is, Satan and demons. Where do we get this from? Well, one example would be 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. 2 Corinthians 2, 10 and 11. Satan can take advantage of a heart. He may torture us where an absence of forgiveness resides. The Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2, verses 10 and 11, but one whom you forgive anything, I forgive also. For indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, I did it for your sakes in the presence of Christ. Now listen to this. So that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan. For we are not ignorant of his schemes. One of the schemes of Satan is what? The use of a lack of forgiving heart. That's how he does it. And he brings it up in the life of the body of Christ to wreak havoc. And he can toy with God's people, his church, when God's people fail to forgive one another. And the last verse, the Lord says, my heavenly father will also do the same to you. If each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. It's not an issue about losing salvation. No, that's not the point. But the point is, the Lord will discipline his children when they fail to forgive. And the father has determined to chasten those who choose not to forgive, again, from the heart. Our father has unconditionally, fully, eternally forgiven us from all our sins and he demands every one of us to do the same. And when we fail to forgive, he will withhold his blessing, which comes, which emanates from a sense of belonging to him. Have you ever experienced that? When you fail to forgive, you know, you realize that your, you know, closeness to Christ is not the same like before. Well, because you haven't forgiven another person, especially another child of God. So he will withhold from us the sweetness we normally experience when we are in a right walk, in right fellowship with him because of our lack of forgiveness. And he may discipline and chasten us so that we may come to the realization that we ought to forgive others. You see, a lack of forgiveness on our part could well bring on us divine justice. So in review, what are four biblical truths required from us 
to know and to act upon so that we may be empowered to practice forgiveness according to Jesus, that is from the heart. We saw the extent of forgiveness, the example of forgiveness, the expectation of forgiveness, and we considered as well the equity, the justice, the fairness of forgiveness demands, the equity of forgiveness. The Lord desires that we cultivate hearts which are full of compassion and readiness to forgive. Are we striving to develop this aspect of faith in us, in our lives? And as a church, how have we been forgiving towards one another? Again, you may be here this morning. You may have someone or some people on your mind. Today's the day. Forgive and let go so that it may be well with your soul. We need to forgive, as we said, why? Because God in Christ forgave us fully, unconditionally. And if there's that sin of unforgiveness still there, we should take care of it right away so that we may again know the blessing of the Lord and the closeness of fellowship with Him. So let's make sure that we forgive those who've sinned against us. And to do that from the heart, as the Lord Jesus said, this is forgiveness according to Jesus. And just like that little boy in our story, we must go fishing. We must go fishing at the first opportunity. We must cast offenses away as we forgive for the sake of each other and for God's glory. And we must do that from the heart. Amen. Let's pray. Father, these are serious words as we considered again this familiar text from Matthew 18. Serious words because we know how serious you consider a failure to forgive. Lord, forgive me, forgive us. Whenever we've failed you in this regard, help us to be more forgiving like you are toward us through our Lord and Savior, Christ Jesus. Lord Jesus, Thank you for your people, for their willingness to always obey your word. And may we do so for Jesus' sake. And in his name we pray. Amen.